Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sand Talks Technology. Hello, good afternoon. Hello, Marlo. Hello, The Web. How are we? Yes, it's Wednesday. We're back here again in the studio. And this week, I'm glad to say I'm joined by two friends of mine. Uh, Matt Hodges-Long, who is the CEO of Track My Risks, and Steve Karminski, or Minsky. I've, I, I will get it right, Steve. And he's joining us via Skype. So as it's a technology show, we're going to find out if that works. So Steve's either going to be talking to us or we're not going to hear from him ever again. Well, until next week when he joins us in the studio. Anyway, Anyway, let's start off with uh, Matt. How are you? Hello. Very good, Sam. Thank you to uh, thank you for the invite. And it's great to be here in Marlow in the sunshine. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. We've just been down at Cooper's again in Marlow, which I love. Um, you've not been there before, have you? I haven't, but I can recommend the sausage rolls. It was, <laughs> I got the last one, so <laughs> obviously I was doing something right. Um, you're the CEO of Track My Risks. What is Track My Risks? So we're a SaaS platform, software as a service, and we help companies and uh, private individuals look after important stuff. So what I mean by that is certificates, policies, licenses, permits, MOTs, whatever it is that uh, we have to keep hold of in our lives. We have to be able to keep it secure and we need most importantly to be reminded when we need to do something about it. So when do those things expire? Who do I need to share them with? So that's what our platform does. Um, It sort of takes everything away from Excel spreadsheets and network folders and diary reminders and puts it all into one neatly sort of beautifully designed package. So you remove all those digital stickies that we all have all over the place and bring it back into one filing system? Yes. Most people sort of say to us, amazing, I've got 12 spreadsheets. I've only got nine now I'm working with you and I want to get rid of the the, the final nine. So yeah, it's all about that sort of automation and sort of being able to understand who's doing what, where and when and uh, be able to prove or disprove whatever's happening. So yeah, that's how it works. Okay, let's start off with uh, what we're going to cover on the show today. There's quite a bit in the news this week. Um, The main thing we want to cover off this week is data breach and data privacy, which is what Track My Risks looks at quite a bit. Um, Last year, there was two billion personal records of information, mainly companies like Facebook and T-Mobile and Virgin and Marriott Hotel. Um, Matt, you're going to be able to tell us, hopefully, how people can protect themselves as companies from doing or losing that sort of stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in with Brexit, potentially, with you know data and data transfers. That That's going to be a, a big issue if we get for a no-deal Brexit, which, fingers crossed, Miss Theresa May and my local MP, our local MP, uh, sees sense and puts an end to. Um, lots of other little bits and pieces that were going on. Foldable phones that came out from the Mobile Web Congress. Congress, um, And obviously uh, 5G. But, you know, we'll see if we cover those. Um, but let's start off with... Um, where did it all start for you, little Matt? Little Matt, yeah. Um, when you asked me this question, I really had to think about it. And I think the, the pivotal moment in terms of not the tech bit, but the entrepreneurial bit, you know, the sort of the moth to a flame kind of activity that my wife always uh, moans at me about, understandably, um, trace that back to when I was about 14. So at the time, I think it was NatWest Bank ran a competition for business studies students. So I was um, first, second year of GCSEs. Um, and as part of our course, they invested, I think we either got into groups of six or eight or something like that and we had five pounds ten pounds or whatever that was given by the bank and the idea was to go off and write a business plan and build a business and hopefully make a profit um so we went away and did that and the other groups were sort of um you know making things out of origami and trying to sell them at you know the local supermarket and uh, i sat down with our group and sort of said look if we're going to do something let's do something big what can we do that's big where do people make money and we sort of came up with the idea that everybody loved a school disco yep So we blagged our way in to uh, borrow the school hall um, because this was a 
a project and we got a free school hall and we blagged um, our way into one of our friends. Paul was a, a DJ, um, a bit like yourself, Sam. <laughs> no, um, no, nothing like myself. He was I very am, good. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Thanks. So, <laughs> so we, uh, yeah, so we blagged the DJ, blagged the hall, um, did some kind of strange deal with Booker Cash and Carry that I can't quite remember, but we only had a fiver. I think it was some kind of sale or return deal that involved my mum sort of underwriting us. And we went off and ran three school discos. So long story short, at the end of that, we uh, presented a £1,200 net profit. Right, so Um, mummy and daddy were very happy. Well, this is where it all went sour. Um, I thought they would be very happy. We we were all on for a sort of £200 dividend each until my massively socialist um, yearhead got wind of the fact that we were making £1,200 between us and decided it would be a good idea that it was donated to the school funds, Um, at which point he and I fell out quite spectacularly. Um, and that nearly led to me being um, expelled um, because of how I handled it as a hot-headed 14-year-old. Um, and, was this uh, a very nice private school you were at then? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was a very down-at-heel comprehensive school in Hampshire. Oh, okay. um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we, that, we, we had this colossal falling out and um, ultimately I won. Um, I won the, the skirmish. Uh, whether I won the battle long term, who knows? It's, uh, it probably didn't help my school career. Um, so that's how where, where the sort of entre- entrepreneurial bits of pockets. In your pockets? Yeah, yeah. Is that, what did you do with it from there? I can't honestly remember. I probably wasted it on something completely inappropriate or bought some canoeing gear or something like that. I, don't, I honestly don't remember that part of the story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of money at the time for a 14-year-old. Okay. So um, what happened next? I mean, obviously, let's not go through the whole and then I met a girl and then... Uh, <laughs> no, but... What did you do at university? Where did it go from there? So I, I did a bit of a weird university thing. I mean, long story, but I got into the construction industry. Don't quite know how it happened. It involved needing a car and a job came with a van. Um, that led me to going off to Leeds University to study construction management degree. And at the end of the first year, I had actually met a girl and uh, came back for the summer, got a job with uh, Barrett, the house building company, um, helping out on the site. And at the end of that summer holiday, they said, we'd really like to employ you. Don't leave. And You've I said, gone well, very quiet. A bit of an issue. A little bit of an issue with um, having to uh, deliver the um, the rest of my degree. So they said, well, look, if you can find somewhere to go, we'll sponsor you. So I ended up finishing, I think it took me five years after that, part-time uh, being sponsored to do a part-time degree. Okay. So I ended up with a construction management BSc honours, which I then promptly got out of the construction industry at the moment <laughs> I finished it, when they paid the last fee bill. So, um, okay. Steve, um, sorry, we've been fiddling while we're trying to listen to <laughs> are you. Are you there? I am still here. You are now live. It has worked. We have worked it out. It's not the greatest quality but um, we're going to persist because i think we can get the quality to get higher so um brilliant so steve you are part of the show officially as well now well hello hello (laughs) (laughs) again again matt so um the the next bit i'm really interested in is you ended up in a company called regis yes yes um so a brief dalliance through Glaxo Welcome for a few years in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but yeah, that got me into Regis, which is where I went back to sort of combining my, not really my construction, but my certainly my corporate real estate experience with entrepreneurial new business. So um, got headhunted by the founder and CEO of Regis. Headhunted? To, yes, well, asked to come and join. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't as grand as that. He, uh, I sent him an email saying that something that he was doing in his business I didn't think was very good. And he said, well, can you come and sort it out? And that ended up um, being a, a full-time job. Um, and really, I was sort of wheeled in as the expert for on global deals around how do people use office space and how's work changing um, very early days of remote work and um, w- without the technology that we have now. So we had a, an amazing product that we built, which in theory, you could work anywhere in the world from one of our offices. 
um, if you could factor in two or three hours to get the internet connection working when you got there. Oh, right. um, okay. But apart from that, it was superb. Um, now the technology's caught up and exceeded sort of everybody's expectation in terms of that ability to be mobile. Um, so yeah, that was really good fun. And uh, that's really where I sort of properly got back into the entrepreneurial thing and said, well, after that, the next gig needs to be my own, not not for somebody else. So that's where it started. And that was sort of 15, 16 years ago. Were your parents entrepreneurial? Not at all. My dad was a civil servant. Okay. And my mum was a stay-at-home mum. Okay. Nothing to do with entrepreneurship then. So it was in you, really. Yep. So the disco stuff really was a, an early inkling of it, you being an entrepreneur. Was, probably that it was probably uh growing up seeing richard branson sort of doing his challenges across the atlantic etc and sort of thinking well the only way you can do that is to sponsor it yourself so that was kind of interesting and my dad's cousin was an entrepreneur as well so he he was doing very well um and he was sort of the the inspiration for that but no it didn't didn't come from my parents you know they were pretty anti really so how long ago did you start um track my risks so track my risks is um well its parent company is four four and a bit years old now um the actual track my risk software platform has been out in commercial release since february last year so okay. it's fairly fairly young in in terms of sort of i would still class this as a, a startup okay and what what was the seed that got you going what 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 was that nugget that moment that said oh this is the company i need to start i think it was working with my co-founder and we sort of said that you know that we want to start a new business together what do we want to do and we sort of looked at where our strengths lay and i'd spend a lot of time helping companies recover from disasters through their property requirements initially and you know boston bombing and um thames flooding in you know close to here um yeah lots of different this disasters. place got flooded quite right a bit. okay yeah i can imagine being next to the river yeah so uh dealing with those sorts of incidents and actually then looking at well how do companies plan for all this sort of stuff the, the bad stuff how do they manage risk and we got into it and found that actually there wasn't really any technology it was it was effectively a, an excel spreadsheet exercise and a few meetings and we said okay we can use technology to sort this so we sort of came up with this idea that we'd be the salesforce.com of risk that was the that was the sort of the the nugget that started it and then it's sort of all gone gone on from there <laughs> okay so let's look at um what is it that we are doing today that we companies are doing wrong so um we recently spoke or we at the beginning of the show, we spoke about the fact that data privacy and data breaches are increasing to roughly, um, well, there was 2 billion private records last year. If I if I reel off a few of the companies that had, well, obviously Facebook was the big one, but the other big ones last year were, and he, he gets to it, um, British Airways lost 380,000 records, private records. It happened in August. A criminal hack affected their booking system and their airline. Uh, we had Orbitz, which I haven't heard of too much, but that's another travel company. They had uh, 880,000 records taken. Um, and that was basically a hacker again getting into their web system. Uh, some more known ones, 2 million private records from T-Mobile. That was last August. And that was an international group of hackers who accessed their mobile service through an open API. I could go on. This is mm. this is quite horrible. I mean, Saks... That's also how iCloud got hacked with Apple, with the celebrity oh, photographs. Yeah. How did that happen, Steve? So, I mean, it, 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 a very similar process, but they um, they literally hammered the, the servers. But because it was going through an API that wasn't uh, a public API, they basically could... could do as many password attacks as, as as they wanted without actually triggering any any defense thing that would say you know you've you've done um you know 
50 logins in the last 10 seconds. Right. So, Matt, all of these things, is this something that you're dealing with or is this just a a result of what happens and then your company comes in at the back end to clear it all up? I mean... What, 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 where does Track My Risks sit in this? Well, we hopefully it comes across in the name. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a Ron Seal test, yeah. yes. Well, once we... Uh, once, so the first thing is to sort of understand where those risks are. And obviously we're talking there about the um, information security, data privacy, but there are also risks for health and safety and uh, governance and all other areas of business, you know, some regulatory stuff. Um, so if you say we know what that definitive list of things we need to track are, Um, really what we're doing with our platform is organising that information and putting it in a place where you've got management information and oversight and workflow that reminds you you need to do things. There was a a breach recently, which, um, and it will come to me in a minute who it was, but effectively it was the, uh, or it was an outage that was due to an SSL certificate not being renewed. So there's a classic example of um, an underlying expiry date that is missed by a service provider. Um, and therefore it takes the site down because it can't validate that it's secure. I think it was O2, actually. It was an O2 outage. Yeah. and, and A fairly major one, and I think it cost them many millions of, of pounds. It, it was, well, it wasn't just O2. It was every network that was running Ericsson Kit, which was ah, right, yeah. O2, O2 and, and various networks in Japan and various else in the world. And it was, um, uh, they, as you say, it was an expired certificate, which then um, when they did a software update, it, the 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 new software wasn't recognised because it wouldn't recognise the digital signature. And, and they also had the same one when uh, they had the American government go out on strike. A load of the SSL certificates started falling over and people didn't renew them. So What yeah. a shame, because they weren't there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because people were going, well, I'm on strike. Oh, yeah. It's not my job. You're not paying yeah. me anymore, so I, I won't bother to look for them. But that's a really good point. I mean, that, that where you've got that sort of single point of failure where an individual person is responsible for something and individual people get things wrong or maybe sort of talking about cyber where we've got the insider threat, it might actually be a, a useful way of making a point by not actually doing something when you're meant to. So one of the key things with management information is reminding and making it visible to multiple people that there's a problem and alerting them and saying, you know, there's a problem. So we effectively count down to those expiries and we remind people. But, but before you go in, I mean, obviously being able to tell people because you know there's certain points of weakness, but how do you find those initial points of weakness? So do you have a checklist of things that you go into a company? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the first one you look at is the SSL certificates as an example, because mm. now you know that's a point of weakness. But was that something you originally did or, or is this by osmosis, that, not osmosis, by through learning that you add stuff to it? We learn and we work with specialist partners. Right. So, you know, I'm not the sort of um, a, a deep subject matter expert in um, data protection or, or whatever, or care quality commission for care homes and regulatory regimes or whatever. But we work with those people that do. So we actually learn and we sort of codify a lot of this stuff. So um, quite often it's best practice or it's regulations that say to be a compliance school, you need to be able to evidence these 28 things. Right. So, there so is then a we turn that into yeah. a, um, a list of actions within the platform. Okay. So... Um why do companies do this? Is it because they have to do this? I there's a compliance requirement, or is it a uh, good um, uh, practice to set up a company? And because I've set up companies before, and this has not been the top of my list of things to do. I have to be honest, Steve. Have no. you you've set up companies? Have you done this before? Uh, no, I just really have 
just set them up and <laughs> done done uh, what is the the minimum necessary yeah i mean so that, that's the same and so how you know are the size of companies you're working at are you know not startups therefore are they large companies medium-sized companies because we work with a lot of startups i mean it will depend because if you're a startup insurer or bank banking app then you are the first thing you're going to do is raise money and go and get your regulatory license you know your banking license or your fca registration um, and then at that point you will be forced to create a lot of the stuff that we would deal with and you'll probably engage a compliance consultant to build the program for you um, so your mindset is is one of compliance from from the word go whereas if you're starting up a marketing consultancy or a radio station or whatever then maybe um regulatory compliance is not as high up the list for you in terms of your sort of core competence um but we do learn um i think you asked the question around why do people do it yeah um some people because they have a near miss or they have a problem most so uh, do sorry. people come to you sorry i interrupt do they come to you after a problem and then they go oh god I, we've got to sort this out which is a lot of mm. for example my wife is going up to see a company pig Swiller. it's a security company and they build a server that now sits between the the staging server and the live server to test for vulnerabilities they've found that most of their customers do it only after they've gone oh don't need that that's an expense we don't need and then they found that they've been hacked and vulnerabilities all over the place then they've come and found these security companies and then post yeah so there's definitely an element of that where somebody's failed an inspection or something like that and then they'll say to us do a lot of that in schools um they have regulatory inspections and then when they fail um we're quite often brought in to be the the way that they can evidence the the, the change of regime if you like and, yeah. and, and, and demonstrate where we prefer to be is ahead of the problem and saying actually by doing these things and adopting best practice actually you're much much less likely to fall under the proverbial bus but yeah, it's an interesting psychology. Um, I've had people that have said to me before, well, we've had that problem now. Lightning doesn't strike twice, so we don't need to do this. Um, or my insurer will just pay for it. Um, I don't need to worry, I'm insured. So there's all these various sort of misconceptions that, uh, you know, I don't know whether many people have been through a commercial insurance claim, but uh, when somebody's poised to write a very big check, um, you really do have to have your evidence together to be able to get through, get that through without it being disputed. Okay. One of the things, Steve, you might, you might find this interesting. One of the things that... Matt and I spoke about all of these compliance and issues that we have, but you don't need a license to be a director. So, Steve, how many companies have you set up in the past? Uh, well, I, I'm, I am probably still a director of, um, I don't know, six companies, and that is <laughs> sort of random, but they are some of them are op operational, some of them are dormant. Um, but the, you know, and, and in fact, you. But the, the the ease of setting up a company means that you know you can go online, and for three pounds fifty, you you have a company registered, and it's an active company. And that's the problem, um, because we were talking about the very fact that you have your eureka moment, and uh, that eureka moment is suddenly oh, okay, um, I've, I'm going to set up a company. As you say, it's three pound ninety nine, and. But does, there needs to be a license, doesn't there, for directorship? What, I mean, my okay, my my idea years and years ago, which anyone can have now. You know, Steve, off you go, set up another company and take it if you want, or or Matt. But but you can't. I mean, there, I mean, there, there are certain. You know, as a director, uh, you do have a responsibility, but you know, it's uh, well, it, it's it is it. Is, you don't really. There's no. You don't have to pre have any proof. Obviously, if you get it, if you do something wrong, then there are, you know, there are there are repercussions. 
Yeah, but th- th- this is the issue. So we were talking, me and Matt, earlier about the very fact that you can set up a company because you've got an idea. You can be 17 because 16 doesn't really matter. Uh, and suddenly what you have is suddenly this thing, I've gone and set up a company, but you don't know all of the things, the compliance risks, the, the quarterly returns, all the bits that you need to do. And I've so often found with the young startups, that's what's got them. You know, the VAT man knocking on the door going, yep, you owe us so much money. In fact, I think it's at the end of this month, you, you now have to do digital returns on your VAT. So again, if yeah. you haven't read that and you don't know about that, you'll miss that. Hmm. If you don't know when you've got to put your re- annual reports into company's house, you'll miss that, as an example. They're minor. Do you, do you think, Matt, you know, that we should have a licence for um, people um, setting up a company? I think licensing may be a bit strong to start with. I think these normally things normally start with a sort of a self-certification or a, um, you know, a, a, a voluntary code. Um, what I'd like to see is better advice um, I think the professionals that already um, advise companies should do a lot more using technology to actually guide and help. Um, you know, do most startup founders know that as soon as they get to five employees, they compuls- you know, legally have to have employer's liability insurance, for example. You know, how would you know um, if you get a group of you together in someone's bedroom working and there's six of you? on the company who's going to tell you that that's the law you know where do you go for that information so um i think the formation companies could do a lot more right. to even sell a service to those people when they're formating them you know and say well i'd like them to partner but with us no one reads no one reads the manual no so- but when when you have a system that's reminding you and telling you that you need to do things that that is saying right th- this has now reached this trigger date you need to do something now or the downside is you go to prison or the downside is you're fined or whatever that's the one that would certainly make me um sit up yeah i mean steve when you've set up companies before how did you learn of the things you had to do um well, I mean, originally I set up uh, my my first company, which is a consulting company. Luckily, I I, I and 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 had an accountant, um, which happened to be this the same accountant my my father used. So that it was uh, so they guided me through the process and what I needed to do, and they made it all very simple because the, they made sure I didn't do anything wrong, and then they were always uh, you know extremely risk averse. So. You know, they wouldn't let you do, you know, risky expense claims and all sorts of nice things, which, you know, I know people get away with claiming a lot against a company which they shouldn't do. But, um, you know, I think as a as a um, as that that helped me. And then and then sort of moving forward, it's always been involved with companies with doing with with other people. And you just make sure it's all set up correctly. And, and, you know, you've you've been through it in in the past and therefore you, you just make sure you do the things properly and, and and generally i've actually always used a company you know a sensible company for na- formations uh, or a sensible company formation um company uh and and generally used a, a startup friendly uh either a, a lawyer or um, accountancy that does a you know that does a have a, a, a cheap startup deal to make sure you do anything wrong. 
So, Matt, would you would you say that? Oh, okay, taking the idea that I've got in my head, would you would you advocate for a license for directors in this country as part of setting? So, given that your company has tracked my risk, one of the biggest risks is directors acting irresponsibly. Yeah. So, would that yep. be something that people would, you know, you, you, as I said, you know, in the old days, my grandparents and yours probably drove cars without licenses, and you said correctly yesterday, you know, our kids because we never did it have now got to do, you know, the highway code. Uh, test before they could even get a, uh, a driving um, exam. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a it is a privileged position to be in being a director of a company. I mean, it might not always seem it, but it's um, it's it, it should be a it's not a right as far as I'm concerned. And on that basis, I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to assess whether people have got the capability to do it, um, and whether that would involve some basic training. I'm working with a company at the moment that have created a sort of suite of um, gaming apps for um, compliance training. So one of them is a GDPR app. Which I passed, as you'd imagine, but uh, um, <laughs> bad if you hadn't. <laughs> only just, um, but it, it involves training, gamification, and then a, a test, and then at the end of it, it produces a, you know a certificate, and it sort of costs next to nothing to distribute. Um, why can't somebody go through that prior to forming? You know, you need to you need to pass a test on a few key areas of the law, or at least have an understanding of what you're letting yourself in for. Um, so I think yes, I'm, I'm not really an advocate of more and more licensing, uh, but I think if you're going to open a bank account which you'd need to do or whatever I don't think it would be unreasonable for the bank to say could you just demonstrate that you're not a complete fool um, prior to opening this account yeah, and I, I know that might sort of slow down the onboarding journey but which I don't think is a bad thing no I, th- I think I wouldn't mind being slowed down for that what I do object to with banks is the paper chase of having to open a bank when you can go to a, a startup online bank well, I uh, and actually have a very smooth journey through the sort of the know your customer anti-money laundering process yeah, yeah. because they're using technology yeah, I know. I mean, I, I, you know, I signed up for a Tide account, which is uh, what, in fact, I've, I've got got. Um, I think most of the challenger bank um, bank accounts, um, uh, long, long, long history of, of, of knowing people that were involved in them. So uh, um, it makes, uh, you know, it, it really is um, when I first signed up for, for Tide, which is a business banking um, um, bank account or sorry, not a bank account, a business account. Um, it's not a bank account, um, that, you know, and, and it, well, it literally took under two minutes from installing the app to going online or going through the app taking a photograph of your driving license and then it was it was bang it was it was just what's the benefit of a business bank account over a normal bank account can someone tell me well no i mean so tide isn't officially a bank account because they don't there are there are financial um whatever you call them a, a financial company but they don't actually issue bank accounts they are um they issue a business account but they're not a bank if okay. that makes sense but, but outside of the challenger banks matt why 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 would i i, I have had business bank accounts so i get it but i always get fees with it i always get i always get extra charges and i think why can't i just stick that through you know i can go on to revolut open up an account stick the money in there and it's all accounted for and audited why don't i do that and i don't get charges I haven't, that's I, a very good question I'm, i think we all just follow lemming like and we pay the fees every month and and then when you actually need them for something difficult they normally refuse to talk to you or tell you you don't turn over enough so um well it, it, i mean i i've actually recently uh well i mean i've, I've had a, a, a nat west personal account and a business account for 
for a long, long time. And and their business, uh, their sorry, their banking mobile app, I would say is is as good as some and better than than a lot of even the challenger banks. And I was really surprised when they suddenly updated their uh, mobile app to be a, a phenomenally functional, both for private and business banking that I can do, you know, you, you could do more through the app in an easier manner than you could through their online system because their online system, um, you know, I think there's a company in the States called Yodel that has a uh, links into all that they they have the links into the legacy account, uh, legacy banking systems. And a lot of the online banking systems use them as middleware to access their legacy systems while the mobile app stuff they built from scratch and, and plugged it straight into the, the you know, their new APIs and stuff. And, you know, I, I was really surprised when they released their new mobile app because it really was a massively huge improvement um, compared to compared to their online banking. However, saying that, I was doing a business um, and we tried to set up a, a business bank account with NatWest. Um, apart from them losing the documentation, the, the oodles of paperwork that you had to submit and go through in person to sign documents was horrendous. But we still haven't got to why you want one. <laughs> why you want a business account? Yeah. Well, no, if you've got a business, you need a business bank account. No, that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. It's for money transfers. I mean, if, if I was paying you, Steve, or I was paying you, Matt, it, and you got your money, you wouldn't question where the money came from, would you? No, but I think they get sniffy when they see the pattern of activity on the account that you're quite obviously using it as a, as a, um, as a bank account and they can they can provide the same service in a different department for four times the price. Yeah. Which uh, is- I think it ultimately is probably... I don't, I'm not a banking expert, but that's probably my guess of where the incumbent banks sit. Um, and I think you've then got the startups that are coming through yeah. and I think it's probably more of a branding thing that it's a, it's a business bank account, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in the old days when you were going for bank loans i got it right now sit in front of the bank manager but we don't do that um but is this something that you might look at maybe as a voluntary scheme uh what on the licensing of directors yeah um i think certainly we do work with a number of accounting firms now where um they're using our platform to interact with their and a few solicitors working to effectively manage the uh, document document collaboration and, and sharing and permissioning and version control um, and we're sort of trying to encourage them to say look you could actually go further down the size range of the customers you're supporting and you could provide them with more advice um, we sort of have published once distribute to many functionality within the platform so you can sort of have parent child accounts and things where you can uh, put the XYZ guide to complying with data protection regulations or whatever in and when you update it when the law changes 5,000 customers are simultaneously told about it right? Um, and you can measure their engagement with that underlying content um, so I think encouraging best practice that then could potentially become law at some time in the future once it's all sort of been ironed out and the, the process is smooth one of the things I wouldn't want is a wholesale sort of knee-jerk reaction that then means that people can't establish companies um, and, you know, we're taking too long to get them through the testing process, etc. So I think it would have to be really slick, um, the means of um, qualification. But you could also enrich all of that data with social media information and other data sources, you know, uh, inland revenue, etc. Their supercomputer to really build a picture of what Sam Sethi looks like and how does he rank and should we let him run a company, no, I guess? No, is the well, answer to all of those it things. It would be interesting to see. No, I'd say no, and I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, one, one interesting thing about your company is, you're all remote workers 
We are. So how did that come back? No office, no desire to have an office, or was it just a case of you didn't see any point and everyone wanted to work remotely? I think initially, um, when I got together with Richard, the co-founder... Um, is it we, his birthday today as well? It is his birthday, yes. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, Richard. Richard. Yes. We're not going to sing, but that's, a, that's it. You get, that's all you get. Right. It is indeed. Um, so we both had home offices. Um, no need to move. I think on a personal level, we get on brilliantly, but I think if we spent too much time in each other's company physically... We'd end up not getting very much work done and probably end up arguing and discussing things we shouldn't be discussing. So it's good that we were separated. And then as we built the team, we ended up with a development team in Poland, um, a sysadmin guy in, in Romania, UX UI designer in Luton. And it just sort of emerged or evolved in that way that now we're at a point where if we were to converge on one place, where would it be? And would it be practical? And it'd probably be in central London. And I don't want to commute every day. I do it enough already. Um, so that's we sort of built ourselves around it and now it's sort of become normal to us but a lot of people look at it as being a bit weird yeah one of our listeners Jürgen he's just uh, sent me a note saying as far as he's concerned business bank accounts are an easy way for banks to charge fees for doing very little that'd be a fair assumption yeah yeah Oh well, I mean that, that so is Jürgen, true. The bank I mean, manager. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think that you know that is the the you know traditional banks were uh, when they uh, moved to uh, you know fast payments and everything else that the the government stopped them make taking these ridiculous charges um, from the consumer, so they just moved it to the the, the, the business side, and uh, that's what they've done. Yeah. Um, I, again, we can have a whole conversation about challenge, but actually, I do want to ask Steve and, and Matt a question. Um, this week, um, 25 challenger banks, Revolut, um, uh, who Monza, a few others, all got their licences from Lithuania. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that, Matt. Steve, you're, you've got a big background. I was. They, I mean, Lithuania has a... Well, there are two reasons for it. One one is that they, are, um, they have a relatively uncomplicated um, system for um, approving uh, licences. You mean they've got banks. very little regulation? No, no, they have a, a lot of regulation. They are part of Europe and they, and they do have a... Um, but a, just a less complex process. Um, obviously, the UK has probably got one of the most complicated processes because uh, you know, the banking license over here a cost uh, a very large amount of money, um, and they are they're, they're, um, they are part of Europe. So if yeah. if we do crash out, we are they will still be able to to um, to, to, to trade with their license with the with the is uh, accepted. Yeah, but the point is, if you move your license across now. It, 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 the likelihood is you're going to go, ah, oh, well, we've done it now. We might as well just stay where we are, um, even if we don't crash out. No? Yeah. So, well, no, I mean, that's, the, I mean, that's why they've all done it in, in Lithuania, because it's easier to do it there, and it, is, uh, and it, and it, and it, mean, it means that they will continue. Okay. So we're killing the fintech business, I guess. I mean, in terms of data in Europe, Matt, I mean, again... Are you talking to a lot of the companies? You've got over 2,000 companies you're working with now. You know, that's a fairly sizable, you know, poll, if we want to take a poll. Um, you know, are they spending a lot of time on Brexit strategies? Are they spending a lot of time on data considerations? What, what, what's going on with companies? I think from the... It will depend on the type of business and how large they are. Um, we do a lot of work with regulated companies, so um, insurance companies and uh, so FCA regulated companies, um, banking, fintech, etc. Um, 
it's definitely on the radar for them. I mean, one of the questions, I, I don't know whether Steve can answer it, is that if, assuming those those banks are licensed in Lithuania, um, have the government, the UK government, actually confirmed that if we crash out with a no deal, they will recognise EU banking licences in the UK? Uh, that, I mean, that's... That, I, I, so if you look at, um, uh, say, Tandem, they actually bought Harrods Bank for their licence. Yeah. Um, but they but they have also applied for a, a banking license in Lithuania. It's more more of the the if we crash out, they then still can their their banking license will be recognised even if the UK one isn't. Okay, that's that's fine. So they're effectively they're dual licensed rather than purely being licensed in Lithuania. I mean, some are so single like licensed dual in Lithuania. Passport, I guess is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll whip out the Irish passport or the English yeah. pa- UK passport. Yeah, I've got, I've got an Indian passport and a British one, but I never whip out the Indian passport. <laughs> strangely, never, never ever gets me to the front of any no. queue. No, Steve, but, you got, you've got several passports, haven't you? No, I only have a single passport. Do I'm a, a nice. I'm a, I am a UK citizen. Oh, come on, Steve. I know you've got several hiding on the, under there somewhere. <laughs> but to answer your question, Sam, about data, yeah, um, it's been a big concern for us and for our customers in the sense that um, at the moment the latest indication is that um, data protection law in the EU will be... Rec- so companies that are or data controllers that are compliant with EU data protection law, that will be recognised in the UK and therefore you can cross borders. Um, I haven't seen yet the equivalent guarantee from the eu uk side so uh, so effectively if if we crash out yeah will we be able to transfer data between the uk and the eu going back that way um so for us all of our data is in dublin yeah um which at the moment we believe that that will be fine for all of our european customers so italy malta and france and germany etc that we we trade with and then the uk should recognize the fact that the data is being held in the EU and therefore it's okay to hold UK data effectively in an EU data centre. Um, going the other way would be more risky, um, potentially. So what would they have to do? If, I mean, let, let's take worst case scenario, no deal Brexit, okay? Um, would would they have to have dual servers, dual setups, dual data storage, dual everything? Yeah, I think it's where, where that data is resides and is processed. So... Yeah, if you've got a whole bunch of French data um, sitting in the UK, then potentially, if you were to play that out, you wouldn't be able to process that data in the UK legally. Um, so it would have to be processed in the EU. And as we're no longer potentially in the EU, you'd have to move that data. So is this because under GDPR rules or, or for data management and, and, and use of data? Or, or what, what, what jurisdiction does that get covered by? Well, the... the it depends. It depends on where the subject, the data subject, resides. Right. So, if the data, if you're processing data, so even if you're an American company processing data for a French citizen, mm-hmm. the EU GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, extends to that processing activity that's going on in America. Right. So, so then which is the why a lot is, of American newspapers close down access to Europeans. Yeah, I think that was probably just a lazy way of solving the problem. Yeah, um, it was. But but yeah, it, you know, theoretically, yes, you know, you, you have to comply with that law and, and you can be fined, as um, Google were just recently, I think. Yeah, and they're, 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 they're trying to uh, appeal it. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, so, um, quick question then for you. What are the main risks that you come across that companies tend to fail often and regularly? Single points of failures or whatever? 
Yeah, I mean, thankfully, they, they are significant, but don't happen too often. Um, I think mainly in terms of the risk types, I mean, one of them is around, we've talked about, is around data, data protection and, and breaches, etc. I was going to say earlier that when you when you talk about the hackers, um, there are hackers, but quite often it's sort of it's a bit like being a burglar and sort of breaking into Fort Knox or somebody leaving their front door open. And I think a lot of these instances, are the front door is wide open with a come and steal me sign above it. Um, so I think there's basic hygiene and housekeeping and um, big one that most people don't really talk about, but it was in the press this weekend is around the insider threat. So either malicious or just yeah, stupidity of in people that work for you effectively. Yeah, you, you had a really good example there. Go. Yeah, so that just recently we do a lot of work in the um, with the insurance industry, and it was actually an insurance company, it was AXA, um, that had um, there was a court case that came or sentencing this week of uh, a member of staff, an ex member of staff, and two two of their friends that were effectively stealing data about car crashes or claims. Right, um, and the way that they were doing it, and I hadn't seen this before, is that actually the the guy that worked in the office was photographing his screen at his desk, and then WhatsApping the pictures to the others who were then cold calling people and saying, oh, you've been in a crash recently, you know, we can represent you, how's the neck, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, that's all come to court. They've all been sentenced, um, but it appears that it's all um, sentences that are then suspended with a bit of um, unpaid work experience or whatever they call it, and a small fine, a slap on the wrist, albeit criminal record. Um, but it was quite an enterprise, you know, it's sort of, I think, tens of thousands of pounds changed hands um, for the value of that data. Um, we were talking earlier about how you would actually stop that from happening. I, I don't know the, the, the detail, but I would imagine that one of this guy's colleagues probably saw weird activity going on with, you know, is, is that computer screen really that photogenic? You know, what what's Jim photographing <laughs> the computer for every five minutes? Right. Um, maybe that's where, and it was a whistleblowing thing. Maybe. I don't know. I don't so know the detail. Are passwords a big point of failure? Yeah, I, I, th- I think they, they can be. I mean, I got a, um, an email from a, um, from a customer a few days ago where I'd, I'd uh, offered to invite her into the platform securely um, to work. And she said, no, it's OK. I'll just borrow my, par- my colleague's login, um, which I can't stop people from doing, but is not good practice. And I think if, if a company is... Um, people are paying fast and loose with passwords like that then what's their their wider behavior like when it comes to data security um you really should not be sharing passwords with people that's an absolute no-no and totally unnecessary well the reason i mention it is um have you heard of fido2 yes steve you have you heard of fido2 i have Oh, good. Um, Two experts, because I, I only just... I, well, I, I, I wouldn't say... I mean, oh. you know, I think, uh, you know, even FIDO 1 was, was, was good, but, I, I you know, I, I unfortunately, I think, you know, there, 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 are, there are many plus advantages um, of, of using these things. So, for example, I have... So, before in, we go in, on, in what, my, what is FIDO? What, what is FIDO itself? Do we, can, we, can we state that? Uh, well, sorry, it is a, a, a two-factor authentication uh, security protocol. Yes. And, and the W3C, the Worldwide uh, Web Consortium, uh, has come up with a specification called uh, Web Authentication Specification. The big thing was that Google this week um, have implemented it into Android, which means that uh, I think over a billion phones now have the capability for thumb fingerprinting uh, access to uh, try and get rid of passwords. Now, 
given what you just re- heard, that might be a good thing. I would have thought, you know, not sharing passwords. Now it goes back to the mm. fact that it's a physical authentication, I guess. I think if you can make two-factor authentication easy, make that user journey easy, it's great. Um, we've seen a lot of pushback from customers where you know they just don't want to go through that level i mean you know personally i do i go through two-factor on pretty much everything we use tools like LastPass for anonymization for, and for yeah. share, secure sharing of passwords as well with colleagues um in certain systems um so i think if you can make it that you don't have to you know validate things on your by looking at um changing numbers on the phone on google authenticate or something like that if there's a seamless journey through but even something like LastPass falls down when you start using apps um it's it's fine on websites, but when you start looking at sort of accessing something via an app as well, getting the the authentication through LastPass to work effectively and and, and not fall over and drive you mad is actually pretty difficult. Yeah, I mean, in the last uh, Mac iteration, they built into Safari a LastPass type service. Um, Steve, do you use LastPass? <coughs> I actually use one password, which I love, and I, it has saved me on m- multiple occasions. From Can I just clarify that's one password is an application unlike me who has only one password. <laughs> now one password is an application that also stores all your software licenses and all sorts and credit cards and everything securely. Um and it's uh it's it's a, a, a great service. Do you do you use something like that then as well? So you said LastPass is what you used, Matt? Yeah, LastPass, yeah. <clears throat> I must get onto it. Must 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 change habit. You've got to want to do it. You've got to be disciplined with it, and then it will nag you about your security status of all your passwords, and it will gamify that. And then you you know if if you're me, you you start off being nagged by your CTO effectively on why your score's the lowest in the company, and you need to sort your passwords out and all that well, sort of stuff, which is thing. good. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. the enterprise one. Um, yes, so it looks like FIDO2, uh, it's, as it's titled, yeah, Moving but, the World Beyond uh, Passwords. Go on, it, it is, but no, I mean, I, but I, I will tell you, it, you know, even though they're meant to be simple to use, I, in front of me here, I have a thing called a YubiKey. Yeah, which is what um, we, we, Google we, also use internally, don't they? Yes. However, um, it, it's meant to be easy to set up with your Mac, and it will also, and your Mac will unlock when you plug it in. However, I've never got it working. <laughs> So um, I'm reasonably techy, and I, I'm I'm still struggling to uh, make my YubiKey work. Okay. Um, and do you do you have to use the YubiKey to get all of the authentication with Fido two? From what I've read, they'll be using thumb, um, you know, the thumbprint. So my new um, MacBook Air has got a um, thumb reader on it built in, um, but it's useless other than getting into my Mac because no other site supports it. In fact, it's going to be useless for a long while because Apple has said they're not going to support Fido 2. So um, the only people who are supporting it are Chrome, Firefox and Microsoft Edge, and Edge is going anyway. So... Um, that's that's not going to be very helpful if Safari doesn't join join the game, I suppose. So, you know, is having um, a YubiKey on your Mac, maybe Apple's not that bothered about it, which worries me given they're supposed to be the privacy company. Um, I, I don't think they're, it's not that they're not worried about it. I think that you, you know, all these things, um, the the technology, say, for, for doing Fido and, and specifically with Yubi, um, isn't built into MacOS and Therefore, you have to install the, the, the UB stuff to do it. And, you know, each time Apple do a, um, a, a new version of the operating system, it may or may not work. OK, well, we're going to take a, a quick musical break and we're going to play one of Matt's tracks he wanted, In Excess. Why In Excess, Matt? Well, one, I think they're one of the best bands ever. Um, 
obviously unfortunately uh, stopped far too early um, and this this song just reminds me of just being back at school and sort of uh, having some sort of long summers doing my exam revision and just uh, chilling out really and before life got too serious so yeah it's just a great brings back great memories well here we go a little bit of an excess we'll be back Don't after the news what you know is true Don't have to tell you I love your precious heart I I was standing You were there Two worlds collided And they could never tear us apart A bit of in excess for you. Did that take you back? Sure did. Sure did. Cool. Well, look, when we come back after the news, we're going to be talking a little bit about what's going on in the world of news around. Matt and Steve are going to join us on what's going on in that world. But let's go over to the Sky Boys and see what there's going on. Great big wide world out there. See you in a few minutes. This is Marlowe FM 97.5. Just look at all those hungry mouths we have to feed. Take a look at all the sun. 
Somewhere a wealthy man is sitting on his throne Waiting for life to go by I think we're into the jungly bit. I think we can stop there. Hello. So that was Queen and uh, a song I've never heard. It's an odd one. It's uh, it's it's prophetic. It's uh, deep and meaningful. And um, really, the thing is, it's about one of the key things is about sort of what we're doing to the world. And that was 30 years ago, and we haven't really changed. We've got worse. So um, yeah, love it. It's a very very good one. I am going to listen to that uh, back again. I think. Um, have you seen the film? Yes, it was it was an amazing film. But the only thing I didn't like, being a bit of a nerd and being a Queen fan over those years, is I didn't like the way they sort of rewrote history to suit the three hours or that they had to sort of tell the story. Um, so I sat there sort of saying, "Well, that's wrong and that's wrong," and driving my wife mad because she, she say- took it as a film and really enjoyed it. I took it as a it being biographically incorrect. But yeah, no, it was a great production. Steve, have you seen it? I have not seen it. I'm not a big fan. Um, You're not, and okay. I'm not. I was, I never was never a big Queen fan, and I'm really not a uh, not a, uh, a, a musical person in terms of seeing musicals. Oh, well, I'm hoping to go and see it this weekend. Actually, I, do. I, I hear the film's good. I, again, it's it's. I, I like some of the some of Queen stuff. I actually didn't like them when Queen were alive. Strange, or Freddie Mercury was alive. Um, and I've grown to like them more since he's gone, I guess. But that's just an oddity for me. I think the problem was that a lot of people got into Queen just after he died. And quite a bit of the music he produced in his last few years was pretty shoddy, I think, in comparison to the older stuff. Um, and then I'll probably get shot by a lot of people for that because <laughs> people like the the, the um, sort of the Twilight Years stuff. But, um, yeah, it was um, they were a great band, I think, if you like that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I was trying to think the other day, I was doing a music show, there's only a few bands I really want to see, current brands like Coldplay are very much, they're not as good as Queen, but they, they are of that nature. Um, anyway, this is not a music show, gentlemen, this is not a music show, we're back to technology. Hello, welcome back, if you just joined us, this is Sam Talks Technology on Marlow FM. Um, stuff that's going on in the news that I wanted to really just pick your brains, see what your thoughts were, chaps. One of the first ones was the big announcement was the Samsung Galaxy 10. Uh, the foldable screen generation, here we come. Uh, so you... it's, not, it's not, it's the Samsung Fold. Was it called just the Fold, not the Galaxy 10? No, it's the Galaxy 10 the new flagship. See, I don't do Android and I don't do Galaxies and so it just sort of passes me by. Okay, so thank you for correcting me, sir. Um, have you seen the screenshots and the videos? I have, and there's obviously been quite a few uh, other announcements from other um, other companies. Um, so uh, I think as well as um, the, the, the Samsung, uh, uh, Huawei announced one and... Uh, Xiaomi announced one, and uh, I can't remember which day it was. 
there's quite a few that were announced and they are um it, you know it's it it gives you the convenience of a phone and the and the ability of a tablet and i think that it will be the um yeah the future of phones because they are it, it just makes it much much easier to much easier to do uh you know work on a tablet um which is much more uh much more big screen like and you can do more stuff on it and then uh you go down and uh fold it up put it in your pocket and it's still a phone would you have one matt do you think no i think to me at the moment it seems like a solution looking for a problem um and exorbitantly expensive I, you know i don't know I, it, I i need to sort of have a play with one really but it just seems the only thing the benefit of the thing i've folded a few screens in my time um that weren't meant to be folded um so <laughs> is it is it going to kill off the uh, mobile phone screen replacement industry and the insurers that sit behind it for example i mean are they pretty difficult to break do we yeah. know has anyone tried to smash one yeah yet? someone's already tried to break one okay Meant to, it, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure they that they, they will break um, because they the, the flexible screen. Um, you know, although it's flexible, it's not it's not unbreakable, but it, it's obviously going to be slightly better than than a, a, a standard glass screen, which is uh, glass. <laughs> and also, presumably, because it's when it folds, I'm guessing it's convex for the screen, so the screen becomes the case. Well, or not <clears throat> in the case of the Samsung, yes. But in the case of the Xiaomi, um, uh, or is it the Huawei? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, go on, Steve. No, Huawei. So the Huawei Mate um, is, I think, an internal fold, and as as is the Xiaomi. Yeah. And they are, and they are. Uh, so the Xiaomi actually beat Samsung to the punch because theirs is actually available, uh, and the a Xiaomi, which is the thinnest, looks nicest, but isn't is a prototype at the moment. Yeah, but one, one, to Matt's point, folds on the inside to act as a shell when you close it. And yeah. the other one is on the outside, and it isn't a shell. It's, so when you close it, it goes to half the screen, but the screens are still on the outside. Mm. Yeah, and then if you look at uh, the LG, has got two screens, but they're, they're not actually connected. So it's a bit like a Sega, you know, those flip Donkey Kong things, yeah. you know, where you... Blimey. Okay. So and and their their example was exactly that where you had a um, a game controller on the bottom screen and a, the game being played on the top screen. But what what I find interesting is they've set the price at such a hard high bar, two thousand dollars, three thousand dollars. I mean, no one's going to buy these first versions at all. They they must just be there to, you know, show off the capability. Uh, well, I think as well as showing off the capability, it, you know, it is a it, it's version version one on of the tech, and obviously that's going to be phenomenally expensive because it's it's going to be low volume, high cost manufacturer, and then you know in in five years time, it's got, everyone's going to be doing it. It's like when 4K TVs came out, they were you know five grand a pop, ten grand a pop. Now there you can get a 4K 55 inch TV for yeah, six hundred quid. Yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> yeah. It, technology and price always comes down. So um, it's, it seemed to me when I've looked at them that you end up with quite a thick folded phone in comparison to something like an iPhone. And I just wonder whether if you took an iPhone and actually gave it a sort of a 
flexible screen so it just doesn't break so you ruggedize it would that actually be a more practical thing to carry around rather than a yeah, big I, folded thing that you know i've got a laptop anyway i've got an ipad it, it, i don't really need a, a big form factor i've got the iphone plus big enough to do those things i think that's the whole point though you don't need a, 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 you don't need an iphone and a tablet you just have the one thing that is a dual function phone and a tablet and it's uh it, you know I think I think that will be the future. Um, you know, however, saying that with my iPhone, I have an iPhone, and I that will never go out without a screen protector on it because I am so scared about cracking the screen or anything. But and I have I've, I've, having had smartphones and broken them, I you know the first thing I do is buy a shock resistant case and a screen protector and plonk it on there, and and I won't actually get it out the wrapper until I've actually got those things available for it. And you and you play what game again? What game's your favourite game? My favourite game. Yeah. Yes. What I game do you play? I don't. You do. You're a, you're a baseball player. Oh, a softball. Yes. So yes, you would think no, somebody that, like you a... might be capable of holding a phone without having to put all sorts of stuff around it. <laughs> See, I need to go to Steve's ah. house because my kids always say, can you put the phone protector on? And I always end up with a bubble in the middle or a piece of fluff or something like that. <laughs> and they always look really sort of disappointed that I, it doesn't nev- stick properly. So I, I don't use screen protectors personally. I've never, ever put anything on mine. I think the design of the screen was designed without it and, and everything else. And I, yeah, I've had one crack, but, but that's just once. In, but in from an engineering perspective, fix the screen if they all break, apart from it being a good source of selling spare parts. Yes. It's massively inconvenient. Make a rugged screen. But OK, so apart from the fact we, we need better screen uh, strength, one of the things I did think about, um, uh, about a year ago I saw, and Steve, you might remember who the manufacturer was, um, there was a company who basically, and I think it was Samsung, allowed you to take your phone in effect, and it was actually like a desktop, and then you just plug it into a screen, and it would just become so it, it was like carrying your laptop with you so that then you plugged it into another screen it just took over the big screen um rather than you having to get a cable and everything else and change it all so it was like taking out your an sd card in effect and then it went to the other screen and then you put it back into the big screen and then it just used the big screen and i can imagine with these foldables if you're that was i think i think the uh, motorola i think it was something called dex yes dex yeah that was it and and if you look at um, you, I thought I was having an imagination moment there and uh, no but there's also uh, there's uh, would you, the, the, the Gemini or the PDA Cosmo PDA made by Planet Computers which is this Sign 5 reboot that it's a weird well I say weird it's a little company um, based out in the UK who've made this Sign 5 thing it's not obviously a sign five because it's not made by sign but it's made by planet and it looks like it's caught the original one was the gemini and now it's the cosmos uh and they are literally they ran android or linux and now you there's an, a linux application there's a android application you can run on it which turns it into a full-blown desktop computer and you you then plug it into your uh, HDI, HDMI screen, and then you it literally you can run it, anything as a uh, operating system within this environment that makes it then look like a big computer, although it's actually running on a a a mobile processor. Although saying that it has got ten cores in it, so uh, it can probably well, that, have a. That's the thing. I mean. Bit. The, the, the new phones that were announced, the Samsung Galaxies, are six gig of RAM. I mean, that's that's just two gig less than my laptop. So it's pretty much doing everything my laptop can do. It's just the screen size is the problem. And so I guess foldable screens, although even with a foldable screen, it'd be smaller than my 13-inch laptop. 
so it's not quite workable. But I wonder whether it folds out halfway, like origami will eventually fold out fully. You know, you'll get this four-way screen like a newspaper. Do you remember the old days of massographic newspapers? I remember going on the tube and some people were brilliant at being able to fold it and then fold it and fold it again, read a bit, and yet everyone was crammed in and they'd still be able to unfold it and refold it. I wonder if that's where we're going with these foldable screens. Maybe. I'm more of an elbows out sort of elbows out. take up three seats kind of person when I'm reading the paper, so I don't, I don't bother. I look at it on the phone. You know, with, with, with Apple, they haven't really updated their laptop technology. In fact, many other manufacturers are getting ahead of them. The Microsoft Surface is a much better, by all accounts, um, uh, laptop convertible that you can use. I mean, mm. touch screens. I mean, Steve Jobs famously said he'd never allow Apple to have a touch screen laptop. But that seems to be the logical next step, doesn't it, for, for laptops from Apple, a touch screen. Do you ever go to your screen and want to touch it? No. Um, I think, well, I, yeah, sort of, and I think actually when they came out with um, whichever version of Mac OS X, they changed the way you scroll. So the scrolling is is opposite to how Windows used to scroll. So it now is, I would say, much more um, designed so that at some point if they offer scrolling or, or touchscreen and scrolling, it will work the way it should when Mac OS used to work backwards. Okay. So, I mean, everyone and, knows. And, and, go, and, go on, yeah, go. well, they've, they've, they've already announced that they are now combining their iOS and macOS code bases so that you'll be able to run programs on either. So I presume at some point you will see a, a touchscreen Mac. Are you, are you a Mac? I didn't see. What yeah, Mac. Yeah. Mac. So, but I, I, used to, I used to have the other... All, 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 all sensible people are Mac users. <laughs> Of course. Um, I used to have the other problem where I, I thought it would be a good idea with the back in the earlier days of the iPad to have an iPad and a, um, a keyboard. Yeah. Um, sort of part of the case. And that just used to drive me mad because I had to then keep sort of going up to navigate. I had to keep pressing the screen and it was just dysfunctional. And you, I remember at the time, I don't know whether you can now, but you couldn't really get a mouse to work with a iPad external keyboard. Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah. They may have changed it now. I've got I've gone off the iPad, but um, no. So I'm very much into my touch screens on the phone, and then trackpad on the on the laptop. And I don't feel the need to cover my screen in fingerprints. Yeah, that that would be my, my I guess my one thing. I'm very precious about my Apple MacBook screen, and it, and when the wife uses it and she starts pointing at shopping things on it, I'm going, can you not just touch the screen? Leave it alone. Just point near it or something. But no, the one thing um, Apple widgets used to exist. I don't use any Apple widgets, but they are still there. Um, or have they gone away in the latest Mac? But I can imagine I would find really useful is Mac. Um, iPhone apps um, as a replacement for widgets. So, I, you know, for example, something like the Trainline app. It would be great just to have that as a, a widget on my desktop somewhere sat there in the back. You know, I can then go, oh, I want to know what the train line uh, train from, you know, here to Paddington is. And then the, the app could tell me if there was a delay going on or something. So they, I, I reckon combining apps and the Mac OS X is a great way for, but it hasn't happened for whatever reason. I don't know why. There's, there's some integration now in terms of the um, iPhone calling through the through the MacBook. Yeah, which can be annoying or, or how great. How I took your call on. this morning? Yeah, absolutely. So so you can do that. But yeah, I don't know why you can't sort of, for example, replicate your Mac phone environment onto the desktop of the of your laptop and have some integration where you could just click on something and fire everything up and use the the phone as a slave kind of thing. Yeah, no. Well. 
if you're listening, uh, not Mr. Jobs, Mr. Cook, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's an idea you can take. Now, um, one of the other things that annoyed me about the Mobile Web Congress this week was the number of phone manufacturers announcing 5G phones. Um, I want a 5G phone, unlike Mr. the President, I was going to call him Mr. Trump, but uh, I never know what to call him, idiot, I suppose. Um, but um, he... But they're going, going straight to 6G. That's what I was going to say. He doesn't want 5G, he wants 6G. <laughs> I want straight. 11G. 11G. Straight to 11. And the Mexicans will pay for it, yes. Um, no, I mean, 5G, Steve, um, when do you realistically think we're going to see it? Well, since the spec was only ratified, um, or the, the, the current spec was only ratified in, in I think, September of last year. So, A, um, it's whatever people have out there isn't really what 5G is. It's what they've guessed 5G will be. Um, secondly, uh, for mobile networks to roll out real 5G networks, at the moment they are running test networks. There's one in Surrey, University of Surrey. There's one up in, uh, what, I can't remember, Milton Keynes or Warwick yeah, or somewhere. And, and they're, 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 Vodafone are running loads of tests at the moment. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't say they're running loads of tests. They're all running tests. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, one of the biggest companies that is a infrastructure provider of 5G is, is Huawei, which, of course, everyone's been told not to use. Um, although, uh, you know, Ericsson are coming are saying that they, they will have the best 5G network. Um, but allegedly they are a bit behind. Um, but, you know, t because 5G doesn't just run, run on the, the current frequency bands that the current mobile networks run on, and they use something called mill millimetre bands or millimetre wave bands, which is much higher frequency, the, to get those f higher frequencies, you they, which are blocked by everything. So if you've got a pane of glass in the way, it's likely to block at uh, if not all, partially it will block the signal. If you've got any metal in the way, it will completely block it. So, and concrete with rebar in it will, will also block. So you have the amount of base stations you have to put up to, to have coverage is magnitudes more than current towers. So if you've got, you know, in the moment in rural areas, um, a mobile mast may cover up to 30 miles. In an urban environment, you might have one covering up to half a mile um, because the signals will go that way and the transmitters can pump out 25 watts and it just all works but when you start going to millimeter waves and and that's what 5g needs to use um they are won't go you know 100 meters so you the the amount of base stations literally will be thousands for a, even a small area and that is going to be um interesting hmm. and, and and the and the cost of doing that have not been even the, the roi has not been justified well yeah i was going to say even if you get a 5g pipe i mean a big fat pipe what are you going to chuck down it i mean i've got a i i, or, I, I well, well it's more it's more of what what you're going to chuck down it that you can't chuck down a 4g pipe now there are well yeah so what what, what there, is that? there are there are um situations um where but it's not going to be where humans require it it's going to be cars and and also you know autonomous vehicles who are having to literally communicate back every you know huge amounts of data very quickly um not just between themselves but between the smart cities that they're operating in because that's how it's all going to work now and that's but that's not your consumer market 
No, I mean, okay, that's for autonomous cars. I get that. And, and, and Alexa devices will work better if you can chuck it up and down quicker. Um, well, look, I, I, 2019, I don't think, is going to see much. I mean, you, you'll, you'll probably get a phone that claims to have 5G. There was a few at um, the Mobile Web Congress. As you say, the standards have just been ratified. So maybe we, 2020 will be when we start to see proper ones. I wonder if, you know, I guess I, for me, it will be the next Apple iPhone I buy will have 5G. But I don't know when that will be, probably September 2020 or, or later. Um, okay, moving on quickly. Um, how did you raise your money, Matt, for your company? Ooh. Uh, an element of cash flow at the start yeah. from selling services. And then we have done two um, seed equity rounds and we're in the middle of the third one at the moment. Okay. Steve, you've, you've raised lots of money. How have you raised it in the past? Uh, well, I, 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 it's... I've not been. I wouldn't say I've raised money for myself. I was. I ran an organisation called City Meets Tech, or I helped, or was co-founded it, and uh, that was all about getting money out of the city into tech startups before tech startups were considered sexy. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I think it's having. Uh, it depends what level you're raising. You're raising funding, but if you're early stage, it's it's friends and family, and then you move on to angel networks, um, and then as you move up, you then go to traditional VCs or banks or or whoever. Well, I only asked the pair of you because this week a company in the UK called Fetch AI, uh, an AI digital economics company, raised six million dollars in ten seconds. Uh, which is not bad going, and a token sale on the, now you'll know this, Steve, Binance platform. Uh, I've heard of it. It's a it's an ICO. Okay. I, I don't. Yeah, so they, they basically sold uh, FET tokens based on a price approximately of point zero or $0.08, cents, sorry, with a $20 minimum purchase and a $2,000 cap. The sale was conducted entirely in Beyonce coin. This is the second sale on their platform. Um, and, yeah. Not bad. Ten seconds, six million dollars. Fancy doing that, Matt? Instead, if I understood it, yes. It, it just seems like a dark art to me. I mean, <laughs> it, assuming that the six million dollars is real dollars, money. Yes. Then presumably those tokens of those coin have got to be. You've got to be able to use them for something. They've got to have some currency to them, so to speak. And that's where I sort of start to lose interest or understanding. Really, <laughs> maybe Steve well, can Steve, explain no, it. Steve, Steve did explain it, and I'll let you do it again, Steve, in a minute. But um, he did explain it on a show we did a couple of weeks back about because I, I like you, had this mental block about what's an ICO, uh, initial coin offering, as opposed to going what I'd traditionally done, like you, gone to angels, VCs, or you know, and tried to raise my money that way. Um, and I asked Steve a question, and Steve, I'll let you jump in in a second, but you know, what's the difference between um, an ICO and an IPO? And I think the, the, the line that Steve gave me was um, it's, it's shareholder voting rights. Uh, was the key difference. With an IPO, I buy equity in a company, I get shareholder voting rights. With an ICO, I buy a token, I get no voter rights, and uh, fundamentally, the token is tradable. So uh, I have liquidity, as opposed to me buying into your company with an equity purchase. No one else can... Well, I suppose I can sell my shares to somebody else, but it's it's a less liquid moment, whereas these are sold on exchanges, Bitcoin exchanges, which then means that... Actually, I'm bored of your company. Sucky Sam, that 
show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.